Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. It's good to be with you this morning. It was wonderful being here yesterday and watching things go on and God be praised and His Word declared by Julius and others without having a single responsibility other than making a spud gun and shooting it off. And that was fun in itself, you know. (laughs) It's very rare that you get paid as a pastor to shoot a gun in the back 40. (laughs) So it was a great day and I'm grateful to God for it. Um, This morning we're going to look together at a passage in the Word of God that... um, that is important because eternity hinges on it. So I invite you to stand with me as we look together at Matthew 18, verses 1 through 14. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, Truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the ninety-nine which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Heavenly Father, your word is life and you are light. And we must have your light to have this word's life. So I pray, Father, that these will not be mere words, but they will be your word attached by the Holy Spirit to our souls and our minds and our hearts and coming to us with power to convict. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a passage that comes in the midst of a series of rebukes of the disciples. A series that, that at least 
in the Gospel of Matthew began with Peter getting into the boat and uh, then getting out of the boat and saying, I want to walk on the water and not having the faith to continue and Jesus rebuking him continues on with Jesus being rebuked by Peter when he says, I must die and Jesus needing to say to Peter whom he had just said, you are the rock. I'm going to build my church on you, having to say to him, get away from me, Satan. Jesus is not shy about rebuking his disciples. The transfiguration, it's the father, it appears, who rebukes Peter again. Because Peter wants to build a tabernacle, which is a a place of worship, a tent of worship for Jesus and for Elijah and Moses and God's the father says this is my beloved son listen to him listen to him and he's saying that to us he's saying that to us Um, in the events just prior to um, where we were last week the demon possessed man Jesus has to rebuke all of his disciples for their lack of faith, which causes them to be powerless when it comes to casting out that demon, though they had had that power earlier in their walk with him. And then in Capernaum, where this event takes place, um, Peter tells a tax collector, yes, Jesus pays the temple tax, and Jesus has to say to him, Peter, what do you think? Do the sons of the king pay the tax? So it's in a series of rebukes. And it continues this morning. Now, it may not be immediately evident to you that this is a rebuke, but it is. It is a rebuke. And the way that we know that is by looking at, it's implicit here, all right? You can smell it. But it's explicit in other gospels, Mark and Luke, who recount this same event in the same town of Capernaum. Uh, It's very clearly at the same stage in Jesus' life. Everything about it is the same as Mark and Luke, what we find in Matthew. But Mark and Luke tell us that the disciples have been arguing together about which of them will be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So I don't know how it goes from this argument where Jesus is absent to Jesus Um, being asked who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven because Mark and Luke tell us that Jesus knew what they were arguing about and confronted them. But it appears that we're entering into the the flow of the story a little bit further down here in Matthew where Jesus has rebuked them and then they say, well, who will be greatest? You know, like, all right, now that we understand that this is wrong and what what you're rebuking us for, nevertheless, the question persists who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven and and thus this teaching comes but it is absolutely in the context of these disciples arguing together about which of them will be greatest in the kingdom of heaven now why are they asking which of them is going to be greatest well I suspect that it has something to do with the events that preceded this where Peter went up and down and down like he was on a teeter-totter up and down in being in being praised and then in being chastised and Peter's told I'm going to build my church on you you're the rock and he's named Peter by Jesus because of his his constancy his courage 
the glory of his life, the glory of his faith. And Peter is the one who walks on the water. And Peter is the one who gets to go onto the Mount of Transfiguration. And Peter's the one who has the two drachma tax paid for him in the story immediately before this where Jesus says, okay, let's pay and I'm going to pay for you because we are sons of the king. And implicit in that statement is that Peter stands under God in the same position that Jesus does as a son and therefore does not owe this in himself but will be paid for by Jesus because he doesn't want to give offense. And so it's an elevation of Peter in many ways that's taking place throughout these chapters, but it's also a a chastising of Peter and a, a, a pushing down of Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Oh, you of little faith, you know. Peter, uh, whose sons pay taxes? The kings, you know. And so there is this, this jealousy mixed with a certain kind of schadenfreude, which is what in our prayer Mr. Arndt spoke of when we take delight in the downfall of others and what a wicked thing it is. And here, there's a certain schadenfreude in these disciples, a joy in the downfall of Peter by the other disciples. And so they're debating which of them is the greatest, and Jesus knows it. And so he calls a child to him, and he takes him in his arms, we're told in Mark or Luke. He takes this little child, and I have a theory about the age of this child, because I just worked in nursery. <laughs> and working in nursery... In the, uh, what was that age group? Was it, uh, I don't know what the age group, Abby, are you here? What was that age group? What? Two and under? All right. In the two and under, there were kids in that age group, in the two and under, who were very close to two. Because they knew how to push and shove and grab. All right. And were pretty adept at it. And then there were the kids who were younger, who really just sat there in, in sort of amazement, watching everything going on, and just sweet amazement, and no pushing, no shoving. And one of them was, can I have Rosa? All right? One of the beauties who just sat there in awe was a little girl, Rosa. Oh, I'm sorry, sweetie. Look at all those people who love you. And I'm sure when Jesus took this child, hey, sweetie, and said to his disciples, it was about this age. And he said to them, he called this child and he said, truly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children like this, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And it seemed appropriate to me to do the same kind of thing Jesus did, to make the point Jesus made. Look at this child. Jesus says, unless you become like children, unless you humble yourself as this child, then he goes on and he speaks about, and whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. What's he doing? He's attacking the father and mother's sin of all sins, our pride. And he's saying to us, 
unless you defeat pride, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, my NASB Bible says rank in the kingdom as the sort of editorial comment on what this passage is about. But it's really not about rank, is it? That's just a byproduct. It's about entry. Who will enter the kingdom of heaven? Not very peripherally about rank, but it's about entry. And Jesus is saying that unless you defeat pride and you become like this beautiful child, and then he goes on and he says, whoever causes one of these little ones to, who believe in me to stumble, be better for you to be drowned with a millstone around your neck in the center of the ocean rather than that you take this beautiful, trusting child and introduce into their life your sin. And then he goes on and says, woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, the things that come. And he says to you, you know, it would be better if you tore out your own eye than that you become a stumbling block to others. It would be better if you cut off your own hand than that you send a little child like this to stumbling. And by the end of this passage, it's somewhat serious and scary. He ends it saying, it's not the will of your father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. God loves childlike faith. God loves childlike simplicity. God calls you to become a child. Thank you, Rosa. You are beautiful. Thank you. Appreciate it, Mary. Now, I hope as I held Rosa in my hands, in my arms, that you said what the disciples no doubt say. How can I do this? I can't do this. Pride has started growing in my heart, and I can't uproot it. And if the, if the cost of entry into heaven is the eradication of my pride, I'm done for. And you'd be right if the cost of the... The entry into heaven that I hope you desire is the eradication of your pride that you're done for. Jesus says something in this passage that I want to call your attention to. And if you're reading the ESV, the English Standard Version, or the New Living Translation, or the NIV this morning, you're going to miss it entirely because it's one of the most execrable translations, uh, mistakes Errors, I don't think it's an error, I think it's a positive choice that is made in all the translation of the Bible, all right? And that is, in verse 3, Jesus says to the disciples, holding this child in his arms, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, those of you who have the ESV, or the NLT or the NIV, you read what? Unless you change and become like this child, right? The word can mean either one. It's a word that can mean turn, change, transformation, 
all these things. It's not the, the question of whether it's change or converted. They both mean taking something and reversing the orientation, all right? So I'm, I'm not complaining about the word choice. What I'm, what I'm complaining about and telling you that you must understand if you are going to go to heaven, because this is about going to heaven, what you must understand is that it is not that you must change, but you must be changed. It's not that you need to convert, you need to be converted. It is the difference between the aorist passive, which is the Greek, and the present tense. You understand? Passive voice means it's done to you. Active voice means you do it. Half our translations today translate this, which is unmistakably, clearly, absolutely passive voice in the Greek and make it active. Am I making sense? What it's made is into, unless you change, when the word of God is, unless you are changed. And so if the issue is that you must change and become like this child, it is frankly hopeless for you and me. Absolutely hopeless. But that is not what Jesus says. But let me remind you of all that Jesus says about how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus comes teaching about what it takes to enter the kingdom of heaven. He came teaching. And what were his first words? In the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, he saw the crowds, he went up, he opened his mouth and began to teach them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is, he's teaching you how to go to heaven. That used to be a concern of people. You know that the first Christian emperor of Rome, Constantine, converted to Christianity, called the whole country to Christianity, but do you know that Constantine lived as a Christian 20-some years and was not baptized? And the reason he wasn't baptized is that he was waiting until he knew he was close to death because he believed that baptism washed away sins. And so when Constantine came sick in his old age, he called a priest and said, now baptize me because the, the emperor of Rome wanted eternal life he wanted to be certain that he was going to eternity in the presence of God and in the time of the reformation people were going around saying if you buy these indulgences you can get entry into heaven a plenary indulgence will take you to heaven the catholic church was teaching it and people were paying for indulgences Great gobs of money were exiting the kingdoms of Germany and going to Rome. It was a scandalous amount. It paid for everything that you see in the Vatican today, the indulgences, because people wanted eternal life. People understood that eternal life was costly, not easily obtained. Jesus makes this point over and over and over again. Unless you are poor in spirit, the poor in spirit have the kingdom of heaven. The merciful shall receive mercy in heaven. Blessed are the pure in heart. They shall see God in heaven. 
Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. Jesus does not present it as an easy thing. It's always the equivalent of taking this baby and saying, you must become this. Always. Jesus had a young man come up to him and ask him, what what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, you know the commandments. And he said, yeah, I follow them all. But what more? And Jesus said, looking at him with love, he said to him, there's one thing you lack. Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. The young man, very rich, was saddened and went away grieving And Jesus didn't say to his disciples, oh, he really didn't have to do that. I was was exaggerating. You know, if he just gave a tithe, that would be enough. Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again. Do you remember that he said this twice? But the second time, it's not about the wealthy. Jesus answered again after the disciples were amazed. He said, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus never describes it as easy. The parable of the Good Samaritan is told to a man who asks him, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus again says, like he said to the rich young guy, What's written in the law? How do you read it? And the man answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and your neighbor as yourself. He gives a good answer. Jesus said to him, yes, go and do this and you'll live. Now, suddenly the man wishing to justify himself said, oh, 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 okay. I, I, I have a way around this, but it involves defining who my neighbor is because I have to love everyone. So Jesus then tells the parable of the good Samaritan to explain who the neighbor is. And the neighbor is the guy that this Pharisee would absolutely hate. The one guy he would despise above all is his neighbor, and that's the one that he has to love as he loves himself. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? Jesus asked this Pharisee, and he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. The question is, how do I inherit eternal life? Jesus says, do the hardest thing you can possibly do. Just as he said to the rich young ruler. Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, comes to Jesus by night, asks him, Rabbi, we know you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answers and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You notice If we can draw you back from the immediate context to the words themselves for a moment, do you notice that again it's the passive voice? Unless you are born again, it's something that's done to you and not within your power, not something you do to yourself. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said, How can a man be born when he's old? He can't enter a second time to his mother's womb and be born, can he? 
Truly, truly, Jesus answered, I say to you, unless one is born of water, that is, the water of a mother's birth, the water that's broken, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do these things in your name, casting out demons, prophesying, miracles? And I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Large crowds were going along with him. He turned and said to the crowds, if anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father and mother and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He continues on and then he says, So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Is this easy? Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. I could go on and on. I've stood by bedsides of dying men a number of times, in my life as a pastor, or sat by their bedsides. And some have been Christians. Many, especially in my early years, were not. And I remember one time being down at St. Luke Hospital, probably in 1988 or 89. A guy was dying who had never professed any faith at all. His wife was in the church. And man, he wasn't dying an agonizing death, you know. He was dying, kind of knowing he was dying, kind of recognizing this was what was going on. I don't remember what it was. But he was near death, lots of family. And that man had absolutely no concern at all. I mean, you know, I kind of thought as a young pastor, you'd come into a situation like that and you'd see a guy going, you know, like, Constantine at the end saying, oh, got to be certain what's going on. No, no concern at all. None. And I've seen this over and over. No concern at all. Jesus preached, this is the path to heaven, and people chased to hear it. Pharisees came to him, scribes. This message resonated through the the first 1,000, 1,500 years of the church, 2,000 years maybe, people wanted to know that they could have security with God, how they could be at peace with God and exit this life into his presence. But if you read the history of the past, you know, and you look at guys like Constantine who's who's anxious on his deathbed to know that he's going to come before God, the emperor of Rome. You read these histories and you look at our day and we say there's no one concerned. It's just not a, it's not a factor. It's not a, a felt need of anyone. 
And we ask ourselves, are we different? Is atheism so pronounced today that we live in a new day with a new kind of being in it where there's no concern in people who in past centuries, because of the bleakness of life, because of the plague, because of infant mortality, we're more concerned about death, maybe to a slight degree, but I really don't think that people are vastly different today than 2,000 years ago. Do you? I think we, you know, since Adam, we've all been pretty much the same. And so what has changed? That there's absolutely no concern in finding eternal life, in entering heaven. Well, I think you have to blame the church. And you have to say it's been the teaching of the church that has gone away from what the Bible says and has presented salvation as the easiest act that you can do in life. Something you do, a change you make, and something that God looks at and says, wow, you've done it. Praise God. Praise me. Now I get to shower you with all the kindness. It was not the the preaching of Jesus, was it? When Jesus called someone to do something and they didn't do it, he said, it's really hard to get into heaven. But today, in the Roman Catholic and Evangelical Churches of America, which are the two biggest and broadest churches, salvation is absolutely simple. In the Roman Catholic Church, just do what the church requires. Get baptized. Take Mass. Don't worry about being a super saint. That's for those whose super erogatory works of righteousness allow them to be really righteous. But for you, it's enough that you're baptized. And I have been to more funerals of Catholic churches of people who were notoriously not Christian where the priest said, this person is in heaven today because he was baptized into the church, then I care to relate to you. And if you have attended Roman Catholic funerals, you know I'm telling the truth. Baptize your baby and they're good, especially if they keep paying their tithes and keep their name on the rolls and go to confession and do the mass. Don't worry about being like this little child and defeating your pride. No. Just do this and you're good. Let other people go further in. All right. It's the Catholic Church. Protestant Church is even worse. The Evangelical Church of America says to people, you know what? You don't even need to worry about your sin. Jesus came to carry it. And all you've got to do is say, I love you, Jesus, in your mind, and you're there. All you have to do is say, Jesus, I want you. And this intellectual knowledge doesn't really have to permeate your life because your sins are already forgiven. So you're going to keep on sinning, but it never takes a little child like Jesus did and says, holds it up and says, you've got to do this. So that everyone in the room is going, whoa, that's what Jesus did. And so we have the church in America that has told all of America that it's really very easy to go to heaven 
And all you have to do is a few simple things and God will be obligated to bring you there. And this is truth. Let me tell you, I've been to every bit as many Protestant evangelical funerals that have been scandalous as I've been to Roman Catholic. It is the same false teaching that says you can be saved by Jesus and not changed. But what Jesus says is unless you are converted, unless the power of God comes into your life and makes you new so that you face the opposite direction and act in the opposite way of the way you have acted heretofore, you will not enter heaven. Jesus doesn't say unless you do this to yourself, He says, unless this is done to you. Now that's a scary message. And that's the message of Jesus over and over again. Unless this is done to you, you are born again, you are converted. You will not enter the kingdom of God. And so, salvation which cost the life and blood of Jesus Christ on our behalf is a great miracle, the greatest miracle, because it takes a sinner and makes that sinner righteous in the eyes of God. But let me tell you, it doesn't take a sinner and make him righteous and leave him just as he was. The grace of God that takes us and saves us changes us so that we can be new creations, so that we can say, behold, the old has gone, the new has come. I am a new creation in Jesus Christ. I am that child. I've been born again. I have had the Spirit come into my life and change me. A great miracle. And so for some of us this morning, this message is probably conflicting, um, troubling. Some of you, some for whom it should be worrisome are not worried. You've bought into the lie of Roman Catholicism and evangelicalism that all you got to do is say one thing, do one thing, and you're good with God. I hope that no one here thinks that's true. You can't go to Mass and be saved. You can't be baptized here and be saved on the basis of that. You must be converted. You must be born again. You must become a new creation. But some of you know that you're outside this salvation. You know you're outside eternal life and you're saying, well, what can I do then? And of course, this is a response of of Nicodemus. Well, what can I do? You know, it's the response of the elders or the uh, disciples when Jesus says it's very hard to be born again. They say, well, what can we do? You know, if it's that hard, who can be saved? I mean, it's always the response of people. It's, if it's your response, don't think it wasn't the response to Jesus. They say, well, then who can be saved, Jesus? When he's talked about the rich young ruler and that you must, you must 
to him, give up all you have. And then he said, not many, it's not easy to be saved. And they go, oh. This morning, I, I can say to you, you can't do it. I know it from my own life. This is why I love the power of God. I didn't do it. I believe that God is sovereign because God reached into my darkness and illuminated it and gave me a new heart. He did. And so you say, well, David, you're presenting me with something that has to happen that's the greatest miracle you've described that ever takes place. You said that it's the greatest miracle. And yet you say, I can't do it. What am I to do? The Bible does say certain things, and even this passage does. It says to the disciples, with the child in his hands, Jesus says, unless you are converted and become like this child... You will not enter the kingdom of heaven. What is this? It's a rebuke to their pride. They're arguing. Look, you want to be converted? You can't change yourself, but what you can do is hate your pride. Hate your pride. Hate the number of times that you look at how many likes you've gotten on Facebook or whatever it is on Instagram. Hate yourself because you want to present yourself as something glorious. Hate that in you. Hate it. Hate it. Hate it. Say, I despise this part of me that doesn't care about what God thinks but thinks that I'm measured by other people or by what I can claim and boast about myself. Hate it. Hate it. And then when you hate that in you, you're coming closer to God. Actually, God is coming closer to you because you can't hate that unless you see something of his truth. So acknowledge your pride. Acknowledge how proud you are. What a stubbornly vain, proud person you are. And how many times you've done exactly the opposite of what Jesus says we should do. Just acknowledge it. How many times this morning you've looked at yourself in the mirror as I have and said, well, I like my shirt until everyone said it was pink. You know, I'm colorblind. Think about how many times your pride has been exercised and you've compared yourself to others in a way that is, is just like these disciples and hate it. And acknowledge to God that you are proud Say to God, I'm proud. It wasn't until I said to God, you know, God, I didn't even say it. I, I just, I don't know how to put it. I, I don't think I ever said to God, I'm proud. I just knew I was proud. And I started saying, God, God, forgive me for this. God, forgive me for this. God, forgive me. And you know what God did is I started saying, God, forgive me. Seeing my pride God changed me. God gave me new life. God gave me this conversion. God did it. I didn't do it. God did it. Nor has anyone here who gives signs of godliness done it. God did it. God expects much more from you than your church does, than your parents do. God expects you to be glorious because his son is glorious and his son has left his holy spirit to work in you and make you a new creation god expects more than anyone in this room of you and demands more don't think that because people are letting you off the hook that god has let you off the hook god is saying you must be changed you must be born again have you been born again
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for for the promise of Jesus that there is such a thing as conversion, that we can be changed. We understand that the warning that we must be is also a promise that we can be. Father, give us repentance. Help us to turn away from our pride towards Jesus and to know the power of the new birth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.